Welcome to the Drug Futurisms Podcast, where we give you the space-time to imagine different and possible drug worlds. We talk to drug policy experts from drug users and activists to academics and ask them the question they so rarely get to answer. What could a better future hold? Welcome to the Drug Futurisms Podcast. I am your co-host, Alex Betzos, and this is... Claire Zagorski. Yeah, so we're um, super excited to be welcoming on um, Adrian uh, to come uh, talk with us. Uh, It was really nice uh, getting your message back in December, Adrian, was like really nice. Um, uh, In terms of uh, the filter article um, that you wrote, um, uh, yeah, so maybe like maybe just to start like we can walk through um that article and like uh maybe some of like the inspirations for it sure yeah well first uh alex and claire thank you so much for having me on um fan of the podcast so it's really cool to be a part of it and yeah um so for my piece on how the criminalization of testosterone attacks gender variant people uh, I was first um, have personal experience being somebody who is on testosterone. Uh, so over the years, I've had my own like personal encounters, uh, experiencing um, the hostility from pharma- pharmaceutical staff. Um, but yeah, it was just always kind of a barrier to get access to something I had a prescription for. Um, and it always seemed to have a fight with the pharmacy. And so for my own personal interest, researched, um, you know, why it's even included on the Controlled Substance Act in the first place, um, and then found that the history goes back um, over 35 years, I think now, um, with um, the ban on, or just kind of this control mechanism to curb steroid abuse among uh, cisgender male athletes um, and kind of this like failed attempt over the years to do that just kind of speaks of how ineffective prohibition is towards controlling substance. Um, And once I posted a call on Twitter asking for people to share their experiences with me, it was overwhelming um, and it was great. Um, Unfortunately, I couldn't include everybody And because it was like, you know, dozens of people, definitely over 50, um, but people were really interested in tackling the topic. So that's what kind of led me to a long form piece and researching and interviewing people um, because the whole piece was definitely like months in the making. I think I started in August and it was published in December. Yeah, that really is a good timeline. And this is the piece that you published to filter, correct? Mm -hmm. Yeah. It was really fantastic. Yeah, and it was really interesting. And I, I feel like a um, a dynamic that uh, is not like not very discussed in, in drug policy either. Um, mm-hmm. 
I guess so. I've got two questions. I'll start. I'll start with the first one. Can you maybe like walk us through like the just for folks who maybe haven't read the article, but please, you should really go read the article before listening to this episode. Like, stop now. Yeah, it's we the were first one they show it notes. The notes. Click yeah. it, <laughs> <laughs> read it. But just in case, like you're like, fuck it, I only like listening to things, which is totally fair. Um, <laughs> maybe we'll just quickly like uh, maybe we can talk um, about um, uh, Francisco. Um, and kind of maybe maybe that story a little bit first. That's my first question. Let's see if I yeah. remember. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. So the story, the piece starts out with uh, San Francisco. Their story. Um, out of all of the people that had reached out to me, theirs I think was like the most drastic story that I was able to find. And mind you, like there are plenty of other very drastic stories, um, but. San Francisco was on a road trip uh, coming back to New Mexico after visiting their parents in Connecticut. And while they were in the uh, a small town in Texas to kind of take a break from driving late at night on a Saturday night, I think it was like a 10 or 11 p.m. Um, but uh, a knock on the window, a police officer pulled up and knocked on their window and it kind of escalated uh, into this situation where they're searching their car these are syringes. Where are your where are your drugs? And thinking like uh, mistaking them for in someone who uses uh, injectable drugs, uh, underground injectable drugs, and um, kind of as they were saying, like, oh no, that's t- testosterone. I'm transgender. That obviously made the situation worse. Based on what we know of uh, how police interact with gender variant people. And when I say gender variant, it means uh, transgender, non-binary, gender fluid, any gender expansive person that doesn't fit within, um, you know, the gender binary of cis male and cis woman. Um, And yeah, that was just kind of like a example of um, not only how this substance is police, but also just, you know, being categorized under... um, you know, injectable drug user, even though in this particular instances, they were not one, but you know, what if they were? And like, that doesn't make them, um, any, you know, any more deserving of being jailed for that. Um, so I think that that was like kind of a powerful story. And then later in the piece, um, there are other voices, uh, I feature there was, um, someone who chose to be anonymous, um, I think they needed to sign a, when they were at a LGBT clinic, even though that they didn't use any other kind of drugs, they're required to be drug tested. Um, I think undergo a urine sample. Um, and yeah, just kind of because testosterone is a controlled substance. There's another voice I include in there. Um, their name is Artemis McGettigan and they're from Michigan. Um, where they've been flat out denied uh, testosterone prescription. Um, yeah, so kind of this like horrific stuff. And also about prescription drug monitoring programs and how someone who's using a controlled substance shows up in this database uh, of all of a sudden, like um, healthcare providers have access to that information. Um, and the people who have access to that have access to people who are on uh, potentially uh, gender affirming hormone replacement therapy. So people can be outed, um, by being a part of that list as well. Yeah. I, I, and, and so this is the, the PDMPs, right. Um, 
So like, I, I, like, this is not like a thing that gets super covered in Canada. I know that we have a, a Canadian audience that I know is also in the most, the, the Lancet Opioid Commission. They were very focused on PDMPs. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And uh, for those who don't know, I'll also link it in the show notes. Uh, the, 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 um, there was a big um, opioid commission um, uh, that the Lancet like called for back in, I believe, 2018 or 2019 um, that recently just published all of their findings. And one of the their main kind of like recommendations is about like enhancing um, PDMPs, which are like this. Like, I can't give you the acronym off the top of my head, but uh, like prescription, prescription drug, drug monitoring program. program. Yeah. Hey. <laughs> I have I have uh, big feelings about PDMPs. Yeah. Um, uh, and so I know there's like pharma net and stuff here, but like one of the, the kind of differences, I guess, in Canada versus like the U S is also like that, um, like it's all handled, I believe medically. So, I mean, like there's still punitive carceral stuff to, to, to medicine, don't get me wrong, but like, um, uh, just in terms of, you know, it's, it's really different than that information being say like handed over to the police, um, for example. Um, and, and, and if this is just cause they're scheduled drugs, right? So like, um, estrogen, I'm imagining or progesterone is not scheduled in the U S under these laws. And so that's like a, like a, a difference kind of there. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and a lot of times the police can also see those medical records too. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So it's just <laughs> layers upon layers of not having privacy and for one, but then also, kind of like enabling this kind of harassment that Adrian was talking about and wrote about in the, in the filter article. Um, it's just really wild to think of how many different people can see our medical backgrounds <laughs> and what we're being treated for who may not have, you know, best interests at heart at all in any way. Yeah. And it could even like just that forced outing, um, like it happened to me at a dentist where like, I'm the type of person where it's like, I just kind of go through life and however people see me, they see me. Um, but you know, my dentist was like, Oh, you're on testosterone. What's that for? And I'm like, uh, this is like not relevant to getting like work done in my mouth at all. So it was, uh, pretty awkward. And yeah. And, um, there is a source I quoted who's also a filter contributor. Um, but L Lanzalotta, um, had a, a similar experience going to the psychiatrist um, where th- they didn't intend to, um, you know, out themselves as trans, but that psychiatrist had access to this directory. Um, it, so didn't even need to, right? So it just kind of takes us like our, that decision away from us um, in a very intrusive way that is violent in itself, even when we're not necessarily experiencing harassment. It's right, this very microaggressive trans antagonist um, kind of symptom it's also like you know like there's a a a difference between like discussing that like willingfully like of your own kind of fruition and consent versus you know having being outed right and Mm -hmm. uh that would be jarring um I was going to say one of the reasons why I left like the clinical context, like why I left the emergency department was how common it was for staff to like misgender and dead name patients is just a way to be dicks to them. Just like a way to push back on people and just get a rise out of them. 
um, if they were quote inconvenient, it would be a way to kind of get back at them. And it was just, it was entirely too easy. Like the medical record was set up for it to fail. Like the medical record, Mm -hmm. um, was designed so that, you know, it had to be sex at birth. There was no way to distinguish that. And the argument was always that, oh, we need to understand anatomy. And I'm like, could you, could we at least talk about maybe adding something like this? Isn't that hard? It's basically adding a field and a record saying, you know, these are the pronouns, this is this person's name. And it's just, it's like talking to a brick wall. It's the worst. It's just, it's bonkers how hard they're making something that isn't at all (laughs) but and yeah kind of similar to what you were saying um a topic that I've wanted to explore that came out of this discussion about this article um are people who are in addiction recovery centers or other type of psychiatric centers um and because when you're in a psychiatric unit and if there is somebody who is on um GAHRT it's up to that particular doctor to decide whether or not that is medically necessary. And in a lot of cases, it is not. So like friends that I have who have been in those situations have had their testosterone blockers, um, estrogen or testosterone, like all of this um, denied while they're in that care because that particular doctor doesn't find it medically necessary to have gender affirming treatment. Sorry, that's just really horrifying. One of the, like you talked about your, one of the people that you interviewed for the article was recounting experiences in Texas, right? Mm-hmm. And that's correct. Mm-hmm. So I had a, I had an experience with a, with a, with a young person that was coming to receive tea for the first time at a gender affirming clinic that I did some work at. And they were telling us about how like the only option that was really ever presented to them in their small town in Texas was to speak to clergy. Cause this, there is this thread, right. Of like, um, the really need for gender affirming care is so strong. Um, because sure, like, um, exploring the topics of like, should testosterone be rescheduled or descheduled? It's like, well, the DA should be abolished number one, but also medical care. Uh, needs to be free and accessible to, to all. Um, and from what we know about what it's like to be trans and also just receiving um, gender affirming care is very much under um, under attack um, under attack now and just very out of reach for so many people. I feel like this is an kind of an interesting point of overlap. Interesting may not be the right word feel like it's a little too positive, but kind of the, the way that like accessibility of healthcare Mm -hmm. dovetails or lack thereof dovetails with literal criminalization. Mm -hmm. So even though being gender variant isn't literally illegal, you can certainly still be harassed by, you know, the police, like these agents of the state for having any kind of outward sign of, you know, like you kind of talked about earlier, that anecdote that you got on Twitter of just having tea in a car or having a syringes in a car used for tea, mm-hmm. even though that would have been like a very obvious and medical need in order to just use that medication. Mm-hmm. Um, 
I feel like it's a great illustration too of how things do not have to be literally illegal on the books in order to impact people thusly, like as if they are literally illegal. Mm-hmm. Um, and one thing I was mentioning to Alex when we were prepping for this episode, I was like, that's, I was like, I'm glad we're talking about this. One of the things I've realized, like after I did a few months of it when I was, cause I do wound care uh, for an SSP, like mm-hmm. a certain service program. It's about once a week or so someone will come to the van and ask us, they're like, Hey, do you mind injecting my tea for me? Cause as I'm sure you all know, it's kind of thick. So mm-hmm. for people at home that don't know, uh, testosterone that's injected is kind of thick, almost syrupy. And so you kind of really got to press on the syringe and when it goes in, it's painful, mm-hmm. um, especially if you're first getting used to it. And you know, we would have folks that would come up and they'd be like whispering and kind of waving to me like, Hey, you know, I don't want to be noticed, but can you please help me inject this? I'm having a really hard time. Mm -hmm. Um, And it's just very, it's spoken about in the same kind of like hush hush tones as folks that are maybe like injecting heroin or fentanyl. Mm -hmm. And it makes a lot of sense. The more like I see and hear and learn that it's treated not wildly differently than that, even though we live in like a pretty famously progressive bubble of Texas, relatively speaking. So it's um, it's especially frightening, I think, to think about how bad it's going to be outside of like metro areas. And then like, you know, Alex is in Vancouver, but he points out sometimes that that's like, even though Canada is considered at large to be progressive, it's not so much once you get outside of Vancouver and I guess like Toronto and things mm-hmm. um, where lots of Canadians live. Yeah, so, I, I also note it's not that there are no problems here. Yes, well. <laughs> um, but yes, there's a lot of access. I mean, like I live like 15 minutes. Uh, this is maybe a good pivot, like uh, 15 minutes from like a syringe like exchange. Um, and like they're all over the city. And, and like I, I've picked up like I picked up barrels, needles, whatever for for trans friends from there before. And when we kind of did our pre um, app uh prep um adrian like we we kind of talked about this and i was wondering if you could maybe like expand on this like intersection between like ssps and like trans health care yeah um yeah and especially i see this true um i guess i'm also thinking about people behind bars and just hiv behind bars and just the many overlaps of like how um uh needle exchanges were critical in the AIDS organizing and thinking about it now, it's like, that was something uh, that was pushed so hard and seemed so controversial at once. Um, And hopefully we can get to the point where overdose prevention sites are now um, what syringe exchanges can be, where definitely absolutely need more support, but are pretty well widely accepted and recognized as like medically um, and evidence-backed and effective in reducing um, transmissions of HIV and other other medical conditions. And yeah, and it's just, um, I mean, even, um, I'm just thinking of like needle exchanges and just despite having such queer roots, um, it forces people to be public with their syringes. Like it forces people out in a way, right? Um, or it can, it doesn't have to be. Um, yeah, so that, yeah. that's what I'm thinking about. Well, like the, the, the place that's like 
mirror to me and i mean they're like i like in the downtown east side you'd get more and also the overdose prevention sites but um like the one near to me is like nice because it's like in a health center and so like you like you just walk it's like you're just going to the the walk-in clinic and you just like walk by the walk-in clinic and there's a little tiny room and it's nice and secluded and there's like one person in there who like you knows their their shit and like will give you like information um mm -hmm. Yeah, uh, and, and like that, like you know, like it, it's still like public in a, in a sense, and like I, I, like part of me also wonders about like the, like the 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 stigma of like, like accessing like these services that are quote unquote for people who use drugs, but like really could be for anyone who needs like barrels and needles, like you know, for people with insulin, for example, um, and, and stuff like that. Like they're not like. I don't think they, I, I, I like my experience here, which is admittedly a very limited experience, um, is, is that like, it's kind of, they've tried to frame themselves in this way that is like gender inclusive and stuff like that in terms of like getting the specific kind of equipment, which you won't find at every needle exchange. Like you won't find IM syringes or uh, needles in a lot of places in Vancouver. It's so hard to get the syringes that I need. So that sounds like really awesome that you have that there. But I mean, how cool would it be if you could like walk it, like any gender non-conforming person, any LGBT person could, you know, have a similar resource where they're walking into this, this healthcare center um, where you can, you know, a trans person, can walk in, get the needles they need, get a prescription, get a recommendation for gender affirming surgery, um, get hooked up to mental health resources in all in one day, rather than all of these things being like independent things. Because LGBT clinics very much exist here, but I can't like my particular clinic in New Jersey, like I can't give them my syringes. But how cool would it be if it would be and all of these things were um, more interconnected um, that, that would be really cool. And thinking of a, a future where there isn't so much barriers based on the controlled substance listings and also, um, the many, um, the many barriers that there are to trans, uh, gender affirming care as it is. Um, one of the things that the, one of the questions that I had from the beginning, um, I, I like, and if you can answer this, it'd be awesome. Uh, so like, uh, when you kind of opened up when we opened up this discussion like um you're talking about like the looking into like the history of like the the banning of um testosterone i was wondering if you could like I, i'm just a history nerd so like i was wondering if you could like unpack that um a little bit and maybe like run us through this history and how maybe it is kind of intersected with or you know maybe was made up within this kind of anti-trans kind of stigma as well yeah, so the interesting thing about it, so I'm referring to the Anabolic Steroids Act of 1990. Um, there's a Joe Biden tie-in somewhere, but I can't tell it right now. But I just want to say that because <laughs> Joe Biden and, and drug policy, you know. Um, so but, much to say there. <laughs> yeah. Um, yes, but interestingly, um, this act uh, was sponsored by Bill Hughes. Um, and Bill Hughes is a Democrat from New Jersey that represented my uh, congressional district. 
And even at my high school, there's like a Bill Hughes theater where like when I was in bands, that was the theater that our concert band was. So it's really, very, really very uniquely close to home for me personally. Um, but yeah, so, and this legislation, like trans people were not named, no, no really any gender non-conforming person, but it's like this interesting um, overlap of gender in sports that I think we see today, right? With all of these, like bi- all the biological essentialism of like, you know, this trans woman has more testosterone and therefore she competes, you know, people who are assigned fail at birth and like all of these myths about um, how, like of what testosterone is and what it actually does and how much more <laughs> response, like how much more credit we're actually giving it, right? Because what we know about testosterone is not this like violence inducer thing. Um, it's like, okay, well, somebody gets a beard and some like <laughs> someone gets a bit more facial hair than others is usually what it means. Um, but this, per- this act was targeting um, people who were involved with underground steroid uses and testosterone is like an anabolic steroid and falls under that. Um, and it's just really people who want to get jacked. And the thing is, is like, I think there is something to be said there about, um, body dysmorphia, not being exclusive to gender nonconforming people at all, because we live in a patriarchal society that says men look like this and women look like this. Um, so I definitely think it's like a unique overlap of, um, capitalism and patriarchy that, um, is prevalent in athletics and sports. Um, so yeah, so this, uh, piece of legislation is what created or what classified categorized testosterone as a schedule three drug under the controlled substance act to put it next to buprenorphine and, and ketamine. Um, and yeah, so there would be like, uh, penal charges, prosecutions to pursue, um, through the controlled substance act, through the DEA, that created all of this framework that we know to be true um, about sports now. So it's like, um, I forget which, there was something recently about drug testing in the Olympics um, and which, you know, is more about substance. But so these, these things are very topical now, but kind of pointing out and going back that history with the gender, gender um, lens and being critical is like, it's very much an unintended consequence in the sense of like, they weren't naming trans people. However, we live in a trans antagonistic society that already excludes us. So of course we're going to be hurt um, kind of as like a um, adjacent to it. So, uh, and that's why I was like, oh, we're not there. There's something more happening here where um, cis men who want to bulk up aren't necessarily the villains that the government is painting out to be because there are absolutely risks with that, but the, the villains there are not them. It's the, it's people who can controlling drugs and policing, um, people who use them. Yeah. Or even like, um, I'm not, I haven't sewered following the Olympics. Um, but, but even, um, this is a great movie that a friend of mine recommended to me, which I, 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 I think I, we talked about it in prep up, up for this, like uh, Icarus, which is about um, doping and uh, cycling after. Yeah, I saw um, that. Uh, it's a weird movie. It's like does it really not where is. it ends by any means. I won't say more. Um, <laughs> um, but like this, this guy, like the, the the premise is like this this athlete after finding out about shoot what's his name 
something Armstrong. Lance Armstrong. <laughs> this is how much I follow sports. I was thinking Lance. I wasn't sure. I was no, like, don't need an he astronaut. He was like an Austin <laughs> figurehead for a while. So we were all, he was everywhere. Um, he was like the wind. Anyway. Yeah. Um, and uh and and so it's like he he tries to figure out how to like how to cheat the um uh the the system basically like how do you how do you get through this doping regimen like ends up meeting this russian guy who's like been like doping the entire russian team for years and like he's like he's been doing it mostly because he's like look if i don't do it like they're just gonna get shitty testosterone that'll be like a varying quality and at least if i if i do this like it'll make it's harm reduction like at least if i do this I'll, I'll i'll make it um so that it's like safe and like that these like you know like because like there are a lot of um uh like analog uh anabolic steroids as well um i i i used to do this stupid job sorry pardon my language um i used to do this job where um i would uh do reviews for supplements that i'd never tried uh, <laughs> um, and like you get like a, a bunch of them are like they're either like like orgasm 5000 kind of like thing or or they're um or they're like testosterone um analogs for like bulking up or like uh oh shoot what's it called uh dpea which is i think like the neutral hormone that gets turned into neutral sorry the the, the hormone that can get turned into either testosterone or into estrogen uh -huh. um and uh and then like people taking those and like trying to um find other substances that would block it from converting into um uh into estrogen instead of testosterone and i was like well this is kind of like research chemical forms yeah. <laughs> um there's like these folks like going and like looking at the molecules and like trying to break them down um but, but all this is like you know like um like a, a function of like one um this like incredibly um like intense kind of sports regimen that we put th people through and then like some of it is like like you know like why are we not like we should be going after coaches for like forcing that on people rather than like those people kind of losing their careers because like the, you know like there's a lot of power that goes into that too that like that like this like you know an anabolic steroids act or any sort of drug act is not gonna is not gonna be able to address um yeah, that's been the argument with the current doping scandal in the Olympics. The skater in question who got a positive test is 15. So she's a year younger than the Olympic Committee's cutoff for when they consider you to be kind of more responsible for your own doping results, basically. So um, I think the conclusion that they drew was heavily based on her age and yeah, one of the things that folks keep pointing out that they don't seem to have a mechanism for is that, well, fine, like that's a fair point that she may be in a situation where she doesn't really have the ability to say, no, I'm not taking that. But in that case, then her coaches, handlers, whoever else, trainers, whoever was giving it to her need to be like held to account. But uh, or a 15 year old shouldn't be in the Olympics, but there needs to be some kind of mechanism for holding people accountable for that. But yeah, and it's, man, that's been, sorry, I need to get rid of that out of my lexicon, but that has been such a mess too, because now like people are also like rightfully comparing it to what happened to Shakari Richardson, um, who did get, you know, 
suspended from running for having a positive cannabis test, Mm -hmm. which wasn't even performance enhancing. So yeah, we are doing a bad job of grappling with this issue. (laughs) Yeah, All told it's uh, way messier than it probably needs to be. And it's um, yeah, it is, it is bonkers. I think maybe you actually tweeted this, Adrian, not too long ago, but I I remember seeing a tweet that I just thought was so obvious and I felt bad that I hadn't even realized it before, but someone was like, you realize that like cis people get gender confirming surgery too. And that's what a lot of plastic surgery is. And I'm like, well, especially now, like if you go look at like what really popular plastic surgery is for like cis women, for example, they get these like really dramatically enhanced hips and butts, for example, it's none of this like really exaggerated hourglass, like a really hyper feminine ideal look, because if they don't have that, they're considered, they don't feel as good about their body. And like, this is exactly right. But we don't think of it that way when cis people are doing it and we just call it plastic surgery. Like it's no big. And I'm like, well, it, the exact same thing for anyone else that wants gender confirming surgery wants to you know change something about their body to align in a way that makes them feel good so mm-hmm. it's um yes i thought that was so fascinating i just wanted to mention that because i thought it was a really cool thing to think about um was that you i think so maybe um i have a friend who's being released from prison um her name is Paige, and she is pretty widely known and she's open about um her story she she wrote a whole memoir a series of memoirs there's more coming out um but uh she was doing underground silicone butt injections for trans women um and then it was um when her business kind of exploded it was this was also 10 years ago like when the bbl stuff really started to amp up um and can you quickly explain what that is oh yeah it's just uh the big butt trend Okay. Okay. BBL is a Brazilian butt lift. Yeah. Um, And yeah, because I'm thinking of like uh, Anaconda, the Nicki Minaj Anaconda video. Yeah. It's like one big butt. We're like really uh, pivoting towards towards that look. Um, And yeah, and like definitely that like enhancement to want to um, change your body in that way. Like that's just one example of how. in that case, with transgender women providing this underground service to people who have been marginally um, marginalized from ex- receiving this official um, gender affirming care, where people go to the underground market to get their needs, and we also see that with um, hormones as well. There's an entirely like underground um, thing where it overlaps, where it's like um, the underground hormone market and its policing. Um, of course, is targeted towards cisgender men who are in athletics, but um, people who can be more marginalized, particularly transgender, non-binary, intersex, and other gender variant people, um, you know, are further pushed out because uh, the more that they're policed, the further they get pushed out, the farther that this care becomes accessible um farther away from them or accessible for some right because we have these legit more legitimate treatments but they're expensive and only um not only so many people can afford them or there's like just like probably like an incredible amount of hoops as well depending on where you live too like i I, we we talked about this again um prior but like the i just like not not to draw a comparison obviously but like thinking in terms of like my like 
two-year struggle to try and get ADHD, get an ADHD diagnosis, which like ended up costing me like it was supposed to cost me twelve hundred bucks. I think they felt bad for me, so they only charged me six hundred. Um, <laughs> uh, and like to, it was like just like this incredible amount of like hoop jumping to to go through, and then like you're like put on like weekly di- dispensation with random urine drug screening. I'm like, okay, well, I, I guess, I guess, I guess that this is like, just kind of like life, but like, that's so not an option for so many people. I like have my yeah. dad not been a person that just like held on to report cards, which is like the main thing that they were like, okay, like you have ADHD. It's like my childhood report cards, which like, you know, not everyone necessarily keeps. Uh, I, like He's got yeah. documents going back to the 1980s. Um, yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. You know, like, but like all of those like kind of things are just like s- such huge uh, can be such like huge barriers that like even if like on the books like something like says that it's there and it exists like you have the right to access like healthcare and get diagnoses and stuff like that doesn't necessarily mean that in uh it, it, in practice that that's um yeah uh, what happens and then the wait list for these surgeries are long too and they also require people to travel right so like even if you do have the insurance you have the money to pay for uh, top or bottom surgery. It's like a long wait list to find, you have to have to find a surgeon, you have to get your documents. Um, and what I know about Canada, I believe that gender affirming treatment, like surgeries are more um, part of universal healthcare and they're more included. I don't know how accurate that is, but I do know just from watching trans YouTube, like, yes, I am able to get this like free bottom surgery, but the trans woman was saying is like, but it took me two years to get because there's so many people who need it and not enough doctors to keep up with the, all of the requests. Um, so um, yeah, and even just in hospitals now during COVID, COVID has made that even harder to um, get that spot where um, people's surgeries dates where it's like, it's a pretty big emotional thing to have to undergo gender affirming surgery and to prepare. And then all of a sudden the day comes, Oh, we can't no longer, the date's not there or, Oh, we can reschedule months, months away from now. And kind of like reflecting on the, the anecdote you told us earlier, like so many physicians do not consider it to be medically necessary or especially important. Um, and I feel like it's often considered just like a, almost an insignificant cosmetic issue. And there's like just a lack of understanding of what it actually means to the patients. Um, because like in that case, it was also de-emphasized heavily, right? Yeah. And for quite frankly, it's life or death for a lot of people who yeah. are getting this too, which I think is very much undermined in this whole process. Yeah. It's um, very frustrating in general, I think, how much um, medicine can dismiss things if they don't have like a lab test or like an x-ray of it. Like if it's not something super literal and quantitative that they can point to that it's not real somehow. Um, that's a, and yeah, I feel like that tends to impact people that have the most vulnerabilities to get like disabled people and people who use drugs that will try to talk about more subjective things that still matter tremendously to their quality of life. And it's all in your head. It doesn't really matter. Have you tried meditating, (laughs) et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. It just, I, I, I won't, I won't cover it, but I, I don't like it. It reminds me of, um, 
like this conversation reminds me of um this very famous sociological um study done in the 60s about this woman named agnes um which if you have if, if like for folks who haven't like looked into this it's absolutely wild um i can't remember the sociologist's name off the top of my head um but basically they all like there's this psychologist and this sociologist because they did this um uh, uh study kind of together so agnes is maybe the most famous anonymous trans woman uh um in in the academic literature um because so much has been written written about her um and kind of this this story um especially now that um keep on, it's not irving goffman um uh that the, the these two people have died and like so we have access to um their kind of records but basically like uh she protect she tricked effect, effectively tricked them queen shit by the way um into like by saying that she was actually intersex and that she wasn't a a, a that she wasn't a trans woman and um it, it's this like really classic study about look how like accepting sociologists could be except like you read it and he's like so shitty about it um uh, throughout but it's just like these like especially when you're talking about like you know the um about page uh like the you know all these like tricks and things that like folks do to you know make their lives just like somewhat more livable and to get access to this you know gender affirming care like um there, there's like you know like even there's so many like these that this kind of thing would like be you know considered by a doctor for example to be like oh like you're not being like honest with me um or you know something like that which is like a, a thing that i think stumps like a lot of folks uh too um uh and and so just like um uh your article i i, I close the tab but like your article i believe like ends with um this like kind of call for drug reform to like um to center um the folks of uh folk, folks who are gender gender non-conforming um and i i guess like um what does that look like um to you yeah um gender affirming care is free is accessible for all um also mm -hmm. i'm i'm a gender abolitionist i don't believe in gender um so really anybody can access gender affirming therapy and it's not really um yeah it it, it can be for anybody um and even now i i still believe that it's like if, if people want top surgery or bottom surgery or they want to go on um hormones and that's like what that what makes them feel uh in their gender even though it's this is fine um and yeah and i also think it's this broader uh intersection of, of drugs and the policing of health of certain people's health that abolition calls for not just ending uh police and prisons um but drug war and the ways that the drug war interacts with the health system so i'm like i'm think particularly thinking of like pregnant mothers who are drug tested for thc um and then that has legal consequences about like how they can't see their kids and uh, all of how that stuff brings up. Um, so abolish the DEA and the <laughs> war and like not just legalize drugs because you can legalize drugs, but the drug war doesn't go away because of what we know about drug war capitalism is that you can't have uh, you can't have one without the other. 
Um, and then that kind of goes into that territory where it's like uh, capitalism does not like none, none of these things are possible under capitalism. I think that's kind of the point. Um, so like, that's why I'm committed to an abolitionist future uh, beyond capitalism and towards like um, getting these things, what we want um, of like socialized medicine um, and like all of the things in harm reduction of, of housing, of food, of having people get their needs met um, as part of integral to just society. I think there's also echoes there too of like sex work abolition or sex work decriminalization too. Um, I feel like among sex workers, the most vulnerable tend to be trans people that are doing sex work. And, you know, the, the stories about trans people being attacked by their dates or harassed by the police and really don't have any kind of legal recourse. Like they're just hoping to kind of maybe get some help from mutual aid, but they can't really, you know, expect anyone to come to their aid just because of the way things are set up. Um, I feel like there's so many kind of holes in the network in general that we're perfectly comfortable with allowing gender variant people to fall through, even if that means, you know, literal death and, and suffering. Um, do you have any thoughts on, and I mean, it may just be as straightforward as I'm imagining, but do you have any thoughts on uh, kind of the future for sex work decriminalization, kind of considering that or things that, you know, we're missing when we talk about this? Um, well, kind of drawing of like you were mentioning earlier about how, um, you know, a gen like a trans person that was in your um, uh, previous care and how um, the only resource for them were religious, right? And that could be the same for sex workers. There's like a lot of these um, religious-based programs that are either based around human trafficking, which is a legitimate issue, but often is like convoluted of the two. Mm -hmm. um, even like for people who are sex workers who are, um, you know, um, who are a part of that and like that was more of a personal choice. Uh, while also keeping in mind of like, sure, sex work is a choice, but uh, also there's the capitalist pressures that what we do to survive too. Well, keeping that mind of um, how much of work is a choice of any work, of any work. Yeah. Um, so, and yeah, and I'm just thinking um, all of the religious services that it's like of what we know to be true of abstinence and uh, drug recovery, you must leave this thing that you do to survive um, yeah. and choose God as whatever savior. Um, and kind of be a part of this program of what we know typically fails because it doesn't provide people with all of the support that, um, that they need. So uh, sex work decriminalization is part of that because um, it is like, again, it's like it's not the sex workers who are the villains. It's the people policing. Uh, it's capitalism. It's all. Um, I think sex workers are pretty dope. Yeah, they are. Yeah. <laughs> and yeah, and I also comprehensive sex education, right? Like that is a service that people are getting and comprehensive drug education. I talk about this every week with Euphoria. I was like, not only do youth need comprehensive drug education, but so do parents. Parents need to know, like have information um, about, about the drug trends, about what's going on. And um, yeah, be able to like, I don't know, ha have these dynamics in the family because the drug war tears apart like 
sure, drug talk drug war tears apart families who are obviously involved in incarceration, of course. And the drug war can even tear apart families just that this psychological warfare um, that sex workers absolutely know to be true, where at any moment their uh, their sense of security can be dropped to the net because their landlord found out that they're a sex worker, uh, similar to people who use drugs. Mm-hmm. That's one of the reasons why I really like like the slogan sex work is work because like that means that it can be good or bad right like plenty of us have had non-sex work jobs that we absolutely hated and were very disempowering and so when people like talk about sex work they're like you know what about your dignity i'm like i have no dignity working in a call center and like letting people scream at me it's like that's not good either right i've done that job it sucks Like, you know, or, or like working in like the service industry where people like are grabbing you and screaming at you and not tipping. I'm like, there's lots of jobs are awful, <laughs> but <laughs> Writing also reviews of, for supplements you've never see, tried. You <laughs> it's like, it's not the sex work. It's just capitalism, which kind of goes back to your earlier point, Adrian. But like, there are also plenty of people who really enjoy sex work and they find mm-hmm. great, re- like rewarding fulfillment in it. So um it's it's so obnoxious how like narrowly we view it like there was a bill passed in texas a couple years ago that um so they raised the age limit you have to be 21 to work in any kind of a sexually oriented business so just kind of overnight all of these 18 to 21 year olds wow out of the job or if they continue working they know that if anything happens to them they can't really go to the police because they were breaking the law too yeah. So, um, and it was actually passed by two Democratic women, and they just completely were not open to hearing any arguments that this was not the feminist slam dunk they thought it was. <laughs> was mm-hmm. like, this is not okay. like carceral, um, carceral feminism is like the pseudo savior. Um, and uh, yeah, just like Sesta Fossa. And for those people oh, yes. saying who don't know, it's just that. Um, tampering down on online platforms who I guess uh, mediate sex work in some way, but ends up hurting um, sex workers who were using those services to survive. And then you further push people onto the street too, because there is a difference um, of the vulnerabilities of online sex workers have versus street-based, not to minimize the ones online because it's still very real too, Um, but you do have more uh, threat when you are street based. Um, and yeah, kind of like you said, if, if somebody's not working, um, like if you have somebody who is a stripper or some type of dancer um, working legally and that kind of thing, and then that's taken away, um, the street economy is always there. Um, yeah. I'm thinking clearly we're going to need to do, uh, Claire, we're going to have to do a, a sex worker truck futurisms episode at some point. Yeah. <laughs> um, I really I, like that intersection. I, I would, I, I would too. Uh, we've got we've got a couple yeah. of really cool ones coming up. Um, uh, I I want to like swing back to to something um, just because it, it it's because I I don't think it's gonna gonna pass. But like just because we were talking about like SSPs and like trans healthcare and like the you know that that they you know maybe it's not an ideal service, uh, but it it fulfills at least it can fulfill at least some sort of need. I um I don't know if people have been following the um uh. It's not an ideal service for accessing that <laughs> for me like that. Um, uh, I was thinking about like if you folks have been following like the, the I know Claire has the, the crack pipe 
thing in the US. Um, there's like been apparently uh, they're not going to go anywhere. I don't think, but apparently like um, Republicans have tried to to spin it and now like run also with um, uh, trying to ban needle exchange, like uh, federal funding for needle exchanges too. Um, I, I talk about like a dystopic future. <laughs> um, uh, I, 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 I just like wanted to like point out that that is also gonna that like if, if that were to happen which again i don't think it's going to but like um uh if it were like that would also be like a tremendously bad thing for for folks who are accessing um needle exchanges who are um, trans or gender non-conforming mm-hmm. yeah it's a bit the language is super broad except at one point they kind of amusingly to me put in that the illegal item needs to be cylindrical so we were in this chat and we're like, do we need to start making hexagonal crack pipes? <laughs> it's like, I was thinking I, square syringe. <laughs> yeah, it's like, okay. Um, yes, but it's super broad. Um, it is frightening. But yeah, it's Marco Rubio and Joe Manchin, looks like. Yeah, the and usual I mean, like, suspects. I'm not. I'm not saying that either of those people like would not, you know, in a heartbeat try to ban trans healthcare if they could. Um, it's it's just like another thing where that's not the, that's not like the framing. Uh, I just wanted to, to note because it was really bothering me um, who, who the sociologist was because I'm that kind of loser. Um, that uh, the, the famous study is by um, Harold Garfinkel, um, who's this very famous uh, sociologist of like the the 1950s and 1960s for um, creating this the this sociological kind of framing called ethnomethodology, which is this supposedly neutral observer just making neutral observations and there's no it's there's no ex- explanation it's just description uh, <laughs> um and yes like if, if you go if you go look up harold garfinkel and agnes you will find the like publicly like the article that i was referring to option two um there is um a documentary at uh sundance um that is uh, playing right now um um called reframing uh framing agnes sorry um which looks into kind of uh, some of this background about like the life of of agnes through these two the sociologist and the psychologist um uh you know interview transcripts um and uh and things like that um and uh i've seen the the short for it um the um the person who who made it um uh chase joint who's a professor at um university of victoria Mm -hmm. um they uh gave me access to like the the short um it was really nice of them i I think i'm allowed to say that now because i was i wasn't but now that the main the main one is, is at sundance i think i think it's okay um and yeah, folks should should go check that out because it is it is a really interesting piece of um, both like sociological history and also of um, of trans history uh, mm-hmm. too. Um, I guess I had one last um, kind of question before we move, um, and that's just me uh, to uh, um, uh, my favorite round of Would you, you do, do this drug? drug? Uh, going going back to um, uh, this uh, thing that was brought up in your article about drug policy, like you know, centering um, 
gender variant and gender non-conforming uh, folks. Um, how how do we how do you kind of like imagine uh, like or what drug future do you imagine to like kind of build solidarity kind of between um, communities, especially like for trans people who don't use drugs and people who use drugs who are not trans? <laughs> yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. Well, I was really happy that my article uh, was well received amongst the drug policy online community um, because there are so many people who just I guess you know hadn't considered it and uh, reasonably so because it is a bit of an arbitrary type of criminalization where like most, I mean, most criminalizations are arbitrary, but this one was kind of like unique in the sense of um, unintended or sort of unintended consequence of like criminalizing um, people who use, uh, people who are prescribed and who use testosterone for gender affirming purposes. Um, but I also would like to see um, kind of like this overlap of how uh, just I think of biological essentialism in the sense of like, and what that means, that term is about like, you are biologically male, you are biologically female. These are fixed to two genders um, that kind of predetermine what your um the clothes you wear and how you are expected to look under a patriarchal society and just dissecting that more and really challenging it and just being like, sure, uh, we know all of the ways that um, gender variant people are impacted by lack of employment, discrimination from housing, um, more likely to be uh, marginalized outside of like the legal job market into, um, into sex work, have insecure housing, um, and just overall social like instability for their social support. Um, and with that, knowing that there are also LGBT people who use drugs, there is a high proportion of it. Um, and where was I losing? Oh, I mean, I was thinking about the athletic bills um, and how that's kind of like, um, I'm not going to pretend that I know uh, talk about sports. But it's like this idea that like testosterone um, makes, you know, determines somebody's uh, gender sex, knowing that um, gender is a social construct. And so so is sex, like biological, biological sex, assigned sex. These things are also socially constructed because uh, we gender bodies from the moment that they um, are conceived. Um, so. I don't know if that answers the question, but more overlap of this like recognition of like the ways that health is policed, um, especially. And yeah, and I'm particularly thinking of like um, queer and black and indigenous um, people of color who are overlapped of not just like based on gender and sexuality, but race. Um, Yeah. I don't know if that answers your question. I hope it does. It's a hard question, um, yeah. and I, I I don't know I don't know if there's a good answer. I, I I mean I haven't been to a drug policy conference in like even since before the pandemic. It was some time. Uh, I, I, like one of the thoughts that popped in my mind was I don't I don't think I remember there ever being like a and there might there might have been I maybe I wasn't paying attention or I just missed it. So, <laughs> um, but um, I don't think I've ever seen like a. A talk that like specific like or, or like a 
panel that like specifically mm -hmm. focused mm -hmm. on this question um and like and kind of looked at it so this is kind of like a an immediate kind of future that i want to point out a paper that i cited in the um piece which did have a pretty good um drug policy recommendation um because i think like the criminalization of testosterone is like a policy a drug policy approach to um to go towards um and that is not the end all be all but it could help raise a lot of barriers um too and like throughout the like towards the end of the article um if rescheduled tea could be accessed similarly to other over-the-counter medications like birth control um and particularly with birth control is again like a very much a human right to have access to it and still falls into this like criminalization of reproductive care unfortunately we're seeing in the rise now um and just like this uh less micromanaging of prohibition under our everyday lives where uh, transgender people are very much used to this micromanagement um, as much as like people who use drugs do. So in terms of policy recommendations, um, I think decriminalizing testosterone um, because, because what we know about the actual intended thing is like, cause that, that's the elephant in the room is like, none of this actually works. People still use anabolic steroids mm -hmm. um, it, uh, to to advance themselves in sports and also just to alter their bodies. And yeah, so I think also recognizing of like, I'm sure um, people in the drug policy community, I'm sure would absolutely agree with that. Um, but for people who aren't um, in that, I think recognizing that like the, the many insidious ways that prohibition um impacts our lives even if you aren't because you you aren't um you don't have to be a person who uses drugs or even know someone who does to be impacted uh by the drug war and prohibitionist policing yeah well said i feel like this is just kind of another extension of like our general societal discomfort with people being happy almost kind of like this anti-euphoria like you can't be too happy on drugs you can't be too content with your own like body and how it's an outward expression of your gender like you just <laughs> we just want everyone to have a horrible time <laughs> and if you don't then you're you know somehow yeah I, I guess like my, with the rest of society not not as like a, a devil's advocate thing but like because i actually am kind i'm slightly sympathetic to this argument like uh it, and again i'm not a smart sports person but like uh <laughs> the one thing I, th I think about in terms like i i took a class on uh drugs and society once and we, we had a conversation about this um mm -hmm. it's like it is in terms of like 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 from what i remember in that class like um among like cis men who are using like um testosterone for non uh like because there are also medically necessary reasons that cis men yeah. need testosterone mm -hmm. um and, and that's actually exempted in the like in the olympics and stuff like that like that that actually like is it is, is legitimate mm -hmm. there's like approved um certain kind of things but like one, one of the things around that is like uh is that it like 
pushes folks also who maybe would not want to in order to try and stay competitive because like it's not like it doesn't give you like these huge kind of advantages bulking but like when you're talking about like pro athletes like you know like Usain Bolt or Lance Armstrong where like you're literally measuring down to like the the millisecond of like who got through like in terms of the like that little kind of and this is old so like <laughs> take this as a great thought like uh, this is what i was told like is that it actually like it can give folks just that kind of little bit of edge and when you're talking about ev- where everyone is a pro like everyone can like you know do the hundred yard dash without like running out of breath like me um uh like uh that um that that like so that kind of pressure can be like put on folks and, and so like Mm-hmm. that like that's the only that in in that way i'm kind of sympathetic to but then do you also need pr- like a full drug prohibition for that because like it, it seems like that's like a, a thing within sports that like you know like I, I mean even going back to our olympic example like that that can kind of be handled within the industry it doesn't necessarily require this carceral uh logic writ large mm-hmm. yeah and i think it's too like uh, I think it's um, like these are very like hyper capitalistic entertain like modes of entertainment where there is such high stake for athletes to perform well, um, and also just like the different ways. I mean, I'm thinking of musicians who you know have to go through like long days of touring, of, of performing on top of traveling, and like these are professions that are very like physically exhausting um, where, um, you know, even an able-bodied person would have um, difficulty in it. And just like, what are the ways of like, what what are the conditions that we have uh, under capitalism that um, the larger system is setting up for us? Um, because I don't necessarily, because again, like even though that there are, these pressures to compete and succeed, I don't necessarily think that that's, uh, you know, somebody, a player's fault. Um, yeah. of like, that's kind of like what, like, sure, you are making tons of money where I'm not sure it's necessarily about survival. However, it is, it is work. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, it is your job to be able to perform and have these expectations like uh, of a competition and like wanting to win. Um, that just kind of like competition um, and almost Darwinian, right? Of like survival of the fittest and who is best. I think mm-hmm. it's like that is what is um, and insidious about it as if not everybody can win because if everyone won, you wouldn't have a game. Yeah. I, I, I guess like it's also like, uh, I, I mean, like there, there's this aspect to it of also like uh, my, my favorite Spinoza slash Deleuze quote of like uh, uh, what a body can do and like and that like I think that that's what a lot of the athletes that I know are very interested in like how to what like what degree to the limit you can kind of go and like pushing your limit further like it's you know give me a hundred percent and then the last like 20 meters of the dash you gotta put in 120 percent um uh, it's about like just forcing over over these kind of, uh, of limits and so I, I feel like yeah like this really it is really complicated um uh you know I, I'm a sore loser <laughs> I'm a very intense winner 
<laughs> um, uh, we play dodgeball. I, I wouldn't. I wouldn't consider it for like you know. Uh, or we used to play dodgeball. I wouldn't consider it, you know doping for a uh, homely <laughs> dodgeball game. <laughs> um, but like I, I know that I know that sensation of like oh if I can just like go for like a little bit longer if I can just if I like take out three people like and we win the game it's it's just me versus three like that feels so great. <laughs> um, so. Um, with all of that being said, uh, Claire, would, would you, you do, do this, this drug? drug? <laughs> uh, so the name of the game kind of says it all. Um, some disclaimers here. Um, this is these are all sci-fi drugs, so they're they're not they're not real. Um, they can't hurt you. Um, they're not um, anything that someone, you know, a employer or something could, you know, <laughs> take and be like, like, you're not taking them. They're, they don't exist. Like, it's fine. I, all the caveats, like, you don't need to, you don't need to pretend. Um, uh, so I, I, I've, I, I've got two. Um, for this week, um, mostly because like they're <laughs> I'm running out, um, and so I'm I'm trying to be a little more selective. Um, uh, so the first one um, is uh, this drug called Ketracel White. Um, Claire, are you a Star Trek Deep Space Nine fan? I'm not not a fan. I just don't know the fandom. Like I hadn't heard of Ketracel White before, and so I read about it before the interview. Although Would you like this to one. Inter- yeah, yeah, sure. I was gonna say this one is suggested on Twitter, right? Yeah, by right? yeah uh, by Phoenix McGee. Phoenix, yeah. Thank you I for following. La- Phoenix. I think it's their, their last name. <laughs> yeah, it's hard to know on Twitter sometimes, I, but I, I I wrote it down late last night. <laughs> so I'm gonna read. So we lifted this from a a fandom wiki for Star Trek: Deep Space Nine. So here's the description of. Ketracel White says Ketracel White, or simply white, was a chemical compound created to be an addictive narcotic that contained an isogenic enzyme. One of the active ingredients of white was uridium bicantazine. The Jem'Hadar soldiers, and I don't know if that's how you pronounce that, the Jem'Hadar soldiers of the Dominion were genetically engineered to lack an enzyme which white provided and required frequent doses of the drug to survive. The white also provided all the nutrients they required, alleviating them from the need to eat or drink. Without white, Jemadar soldiers suffered withdrawal symptoms, including pain, anxiety, loss of mental control, and inability to shroud. Eventually, the gym- <laughs> Yeah. I'm guessing they can become invisible. That's pretty yeah, bad. That's what I assumed you. That's yeah. <laughs> Eventually, the Jemadar spiraled into homicidal insanity. Like, yeah, if, if they lack the drug. So, like, uh, and yeah. in this case, you don't lack this necessary ingredient. So, like, you've got, like, I had to include the withdrawal effects because it seemed you should know what you're putting in your body yeah. <laughs> in, in theory of this, this, this drug. So, yeah, would you do this drug? Yeah. Uh, until the withdrawal symptoms, you had me. However, we have a safe supply consistent supply i would probably do it um i do love to eat and i do love to drink different liquids <laughs> it's the thing that you always have to do for the end amount of time so i think having that um as a choice that you don't have to do that would be pretty cool so i can focus on doing something else other than um you know no no shots towards cooking is not my favorite thing <laughs> do um so yeah i would probably do that yeah it's like on the on the positive side it, it really sounds like soylent 
<laughs> Soylent pus powers. Yeah. It does. Uh, this reminds me too of the of the lysine contingency in Jurassic Park. Uh, they like they had to supplement the dinosaurs with lysine or they died. And that was like a way to control them so they could never really get away. Just imagining giving um dinosaurs a bunch of five ants. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like, like the logistics sure they're, of real, being... they're really focused tyrannosaurs. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like the logistics of being a Jurassic Park veterinarian just have to be like worth a sitcom right there, right? Like that's just I would I would watch that. It's like, the, uh, like a, a prequel of of them, like in their <laughs> their day to day lives, like before everything goes bad, and like uh-huh. that, you know, like before like the, all, all the dinosaurs are, are released, and you're just like. Yeah, you know, it's kind of mundane. Like, we just feed them lysine and it's fine. It's like, oh shit, a shipment didn't come in. Fucking, they have to like go around the island, like scouring for it. I'd watch the crap out of that. That would be fantastic. Michael Schur should write a treatments, like, very, like, like smart workplace comedy sort of a deal. It could be good. We have another drug, Adrian. Yeah. You want to take this one, Alex? Yeah. So, okay, so this one's a little weird. Okay. So I have a little bit of a spiel to go with it. Um, so psychedelics minus uh, the psychedelic part. <laughs> um, and so like, like I, I know that doesn't seem like a, a drug future, but it's like, it, it kind of is and like one that is like very close to potentially happening. Like, I, I don't know if, if you follow this Adrian, but like lots of this, like part of this big, like psychedelic capitalist boom has Ooh. been to, to find a psychedelic set you know would work for folks with ptsd or with um you know or or who have like other you know like there is a positive out like thought to this too like you know not everyone you know is maybe like the right person to be doing psychedelics like you know for mental health reasons right and so like if you had a, a this this drug that could um uh you know meet those kind of needs um you know like i like like it might be good but on the other hand it sounds really boring um but like what, what kind of like what got me thinking about this was i was reading this article by an, another person on twitter who um who uh was is a big clockwork orange stand I, I was like i i don't think i i don't want to do clockwork orange stuff on this episode because I, I need to think through it a little more i i love this quote though i'm just going to read it really quickly um, and then they'll ask you, what'd you do this drug? Um, the historic context of a clockwork orange is a decisively neuroscientific and psychopharmacologic one. Although we don't have a list of sources, uh, source text for his novel, we know that Burgess, the author of Clockwork Orange, had been reading and writing in the dystopic tradition of George Orwell and Aldous Huxley. Burgess was specifically interested in Brave New World as Huxley was writing against the utopianism of H.G. Wells, a proponent of scientific rationalism. And like, that's kind of what got me thinking about this is like the, the historical context that makes these kind of sci-fi drugs. So um, without any more ranting, um, psychedelics minus uh, the psychedelic part, uh, <laughs> would you do this drug? It does sound boring. But there are other benefits to psychedelics, so I probably would. I would look, I would want to see what it's all about. It kind of reminds me of the of the goal of ketamine infusions at this point. Mm-hmm. Like the the point of that is not to let someone trip; it's other things. 
Mm-hmm. I mean, they can't exclude that at this point, but if they could, I'm sure that would be ideal from a medical standpoint. I guess with the ketamine stuff, it's like there at least kind of seems like there's some evidence that the the trip itself is not like a unnecessary component and that it has this extra cycle, like, like the, this psychopharmacological benefit, especially for mm-hmm. folks with depression. Whereas mm-hmm. like the, the psychedelics, like without the, the psychedelic um, part, like to me, just like it, it, it reminds me of this like nineties, like something kind of like nostalgic about it. This like this nineties dream in the in the wake of um shoot what's the that first ssri prozac there we go um Mm. yeah this 90s dream of like with ssris that they would just be this kind of like cure-all like serotonin selective reuptake inhibitors that would like you know would revolutionize things you get this kind of like lock and key kind Mm. of theory And, and and that that's kind of like what this psychedelic thing because like the, the like the mdma assisted treatment and stuff like it seems like it's the, the like experience itself that is the um the part of it that works and so like to me there's something kind of utopian about that uh, about the, the psychedelic without the psychedelic part or a little dystopian uh it, it, it potentially in other ways if it, it within this lens of prohibition that we live in yeah, I also think um, it could be interesting um, to make psychedelics more approachable um, for people who were afraid of it. Um, yeah. so also, just like, I don't know, I'm thinking of like um, people like boomers who haven't tripped or maybe they didn't trip at all in the 60s, 70s, right? Um, but yeah, it would, it would be interesting. I would want to see what it's all about. And yeah. then I would talk to, um, yeah, I would want to see what it's all about. That spirit of uh, curiosity and exploration there. I like it. I think that's it. Are you feeling good, Alex? Yeah. Um, Adrian, uh, do you have anything when you can leave this to yeah. anything you'd like to plug? Yeah. Um, any kind of final thoughts? Yeah, uh, I, I'm pleased with the conversation we had today. Thank you so much, um, both of you, for having me on. I was really happy and excited uh, to talk about it. Um, definitely want to plug Filter Mag. Um, you can view my articles on Filter Mag, um, searching Adrian Corsione. Um, Definitely, if you have managed to get through this whole episode and have not read my article, please go do that. Um, and I also like would love to hear here from any um, uh, trans non-binary, intersex, uh, otherwise gender variant people listening. Um, if you have an experience uh, with the criminalization of testosterone or um, just any kind of similar story, I would love to hear from you. It's definitely a topic I want to continue um, uh, reporting on for sure. Um, and also, even if you're somebody who's um, a trans person not on testosterone, if you're on estrogen or anything like that, like if you still uh, have an experience of um, navigating the healthcare system and um, anything that falls under like the the policing of health that's very much within my uh, wheelhouse. Um, and yeah, uh, really excited to, to work with Filter2. Uh, shout out to Will and Castalia, great editors, uh, great people. Uh, And thank you so much. Um, Yeah. Thank you so much again for having me on.
Awesome. Thanks for Thanks joining so us. Much. Yeah. Yeah. I will also give a shout out to Filter. I echo Filter, everything we stand. you said. <laughs> it's so true. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you so much for joining us, Adrian, for talking about this. This was really interesting. And yeah, I think we got a couple of ideas like as we were talking, and that's always a great sign for the conversation. Thank you for listening to the Drug Futurisms podcast. More information and resources for this episode are available in the show notes. If you want to help us imagine a different future, you could support us at patreon.com slash drugfuturisms, give us a good rating on iTunes, or share this podcast with a friend. Drug Futurisms is produced and hosted by Claire Zagorski and Alex Betzos. Our editor is Marcel Rambo. Our cover artist is Brooke Payne. And our original music was produced by Jake Goodison. Until next time, remember, another drug world is possible.